I remember Regis Philbin, not from the talk show, because I guess I was a teenager at that point. I don't know, a teenager that walked, watched Regis and Kathy Lee in the mornings. Uh, if I was sick in the mornings, family feud all day long, right? Price is right first, and then family feud. Never Regis. But when I saw Regis was Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, and I, I, uh, I was like, I mean, as a kid, just feeling the kind of gimmicky, over-the-top lights and stuff like it's kind of silly to me like what do other people think uh but i just remember that that thing and it comes down to you know a question four options heavy music lights all on you and i, I just want to do that right now not to one person but to all the husbands in the room dun 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 <laughs> functionally First question, only question, million-dollar question with no actual million dollars. Here we go. Who wants to be a millionaire? Functionally, husbands, do do you treat your wife like A, a problem to fix, B, an object to use, C, a trophy to show off, or D, a person to love. Now, you know the answer, right? But I asked, functionally, husbands, how do you treat your wife? Problem to fix, an object to use, a trophy to show off, or Ephesians 5, verse 25, look at it with me. I want you to to see, we're just walking through the book of Ephesians. That's what we typically do. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there's one under the chair for you. You can look at it with us. Uh, think if you, if you get to Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, that helps. Go back before Romans, 1 Corinthians. That'll get you to Ephesians, okay? If you don't have a Bible at home, take that one with you. We want you to have it. Also, we're walking through Ephesians. We've been. Here's a study guide. There's one, I think, in that lobby and also in the Welcome Center if you want to take one for free on the way home. We only have two more chapters left, as in one after this. But you can jump in. Okay, Ephesians 5. A problem to fix, an object to use, a trophy to show off, or D, a person to love. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? That he might sanctify, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he, Jesus, might present the church, his bride, to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Husbands, love your wives as Jesus loves his church that's it this is simple but this is profound and takes a lifetime to work out but as jesus loves the church to be very clear coming off of last week that the this comment was countercultural to that culture as it is to our culture right Because in that culture, particularly for men, the example that they saw, the example that they are to follow would be their Roman grandfathers or fathers. Now think about this. 
That, that's their example. That's what they're supposed to do. That's how they're supposed to lead. Now, now that's not exactly uh, how we do in our culture, but you know that there's times if you've maybe had some kids or been married for uh, a few years. I've got, what, 16 uh, years in the game. And so after a few years, you, you see things, and you see things like your dad do something to your mom in front of you, and you go, oh, man. Oh, I do that same thing to my wife. I don't like it. Do you know what I'm saying? And what he's saying is whether it's the clear example that is set before you to follow or if it implicitly is in you because you grew up, your husband, I mean, your dad and your grandfather is not the example, but Jesus is the example. And how has he loved his bride? He loves his bride. He died to wash her clean, to forgive her, to restore her dignity, to clothe her in a bright, white, righteous dress that's how jesus loves he doesn't ignore you suppress you or merely put up with you jesus loves you towards magnificence now when we're called the bride of christ and you hear jesus as the the husband as the perfect example the archetype don't hear that through the lens of kind of the American way of marriage, you've got to go back to the old Israelite way of marriage, which is prearranged marriage. So, what is happening here in this grand story, this cosmic romance? Is that there's a father named Jehovah who has an unmarried son. And what he does is he sends his spirit to go woo, win a bride for his son and to secure her and then says, son, there's, I've got a wife for you. Go love her. Go get her, love her, serve her, cherish her. And with wide eyes and joy-filled heart, Jesus says, yes, I'll love her. I'll go after her. What does it mean? It means, it means humbling yourself to live like them, to be with them. It means humbling yourself to listen to them, to walk with them, to weep with them. It means humbling yourself to the point of dying for them, to giving up your life. If, if you want to love this bride, if you want to love her towards magnificent son, you must die for her. And he says, I will. This is what we're caught up in. Jesus says in John 17, 24, Father, I want those you have given to me to be with me where I am. He wants you. That's his prayer in John 17 on the eve of his crucifixion saying, I want my bride. I'm praying for my bride. I love, I cherish, Lord, please, uh, Father, please give my bride to me. I, I want them. I want to see them. He wants you, not because of the way you wear your hair or the cute little way you walk. He wants you not because you have a great sense of humor. He wants you not because you're so successful. He wants you not because you clean your house so well. He wants you not because you run a corporation so efficiently. He wants you because the Father has given you to him. And he gladly said, yes, 
and joyfully said, I love her. But to press it even further, to press it even further, we weren't a nice gal that he found at the library. Do you hear me? The Old Testament does not paint that picture at all of us. We weren't found as a nice kind of library. We were found riddled with idolatry, stained with sin and shame in the brothel. And he came to us. Alan Wright in his book, Lover My Soul, says this. The real marvel is not that Jesus came to save the lost. That also was simple obedience. The marvel is that he loved those he came to save. The miracle is not that he came to a spiritually adulterous generation. The miracle is that he actually adored his bride whom he took from the brothel. Jesus, not your dad or your grandfather or anything you've heard or seen, is your example of husbandry. Jesus says, like Jesus loves his bride, husbands love your wife. So now, now I, last week I told you I didn't feel intrepid about going into uh, uh, wives submit to your husband's wife because the beauty there, and if I brought that up just now and you weren't here and you're like, uh-oh, go listen to it, okay? I also don't feel intrepid about this. They're both weighty, Right? And we could both look at the other and say, I have it harder than you. But that's not the point. The point is to say, this thing that you got caught up in, that somehow you, you uh, found this person and you loved them and you, you said, I'm going to marry this person in front of other people. We're going to pay a lot of money for people to eat food at an event for us. You did that. Because it shows off, not Mary, it shows off Jesus and his bride. So Jesus is your example. Verse 28, he goes on. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. So just like Jesus loved the church, his bride, here we go. Husbands should love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because, this is the why here, we are members of his body. Then he quotes Genesis 2. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, one flesh, united, intimately sharing this life together, one flesh. Verse 32, this mystery is profound. I'm saying that refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, this body metaphor connects back to last week. Jesus is his groom and is the groom and Jesus and the church is bride. Yes. But also Jesus is the head and his church is the body. So last week, Paul then also said, husbands, you are the head 
wives, you are the body. Now, the word head means one who is in authority over or one who leads or one who has primary responsibility. So last week we talked about the misconceptions and the true nature of submission. Because I want to try to clear out some ground because this is a... I'm not really concerned culturally. I'm concerned about like your real relationships. Your relationships. Th- this is where we get into a lot of trouble with these things. But this week I want to do the same with headship and work through this text and see how it directs our marriages. Because really, the need here is, is this. The, the need is spirit-guided, humble, loving, grace-filled, affectionate, truthful, united, intimate, sanctifying marriages. That's the need. There, there is a connection here that the health of our body as a whole is only probably as healthy as the collection of families that it makes up. And so, this is a big deal. What we need to thrive, what we need to do to flourish, what we need to make disciples and plant churches is spirit-guided, humble, loving, grace-filled, affectionate, truthful, united, intimate, sanctifying marriages. So, let's clear out some of the terribleness, let's clear out some of the undergrowth, let's clear out some of the past abuse, again, because the proper response to abuse is not disuse, but the proper use. So let's clear out some of the mess, and then talk about what the beauty is, because what is more beautiful than the Messiah God-man loving and caring for and dying for and loving a bride towards magnificence? This is amazing what we're talking about today. So misconceptions about the nature of headship. Number one, husbands are never commanded to rule their wives, but to love them. The misconception is that you're commanded to rule, just to be clear. Okay, it's worded a little weird. But husbands, you're never told to put your wife in subjection or enforce obedience. Some men have a perverted, twisted mentality that it's their responsibility to put their wives in their place. I'm not commanded to rule her. Or as Jesus says, like the Gentiles, lord it over. Lord authority. Lord the leadership. Lord the responsibility. Over. But to love. Number two, headship is never portrayed in Scripture as a means for self-satisfaction or self-exaltation. Do you hear me? How we read it, how we think about it, so often says this, right? If you're the head, you get to be the boss, a.k.a. you get to decide, direct, uh, negotiate, manipulate, whatever it is that, that works best for you, that gets you further, that makes you look best. No, headship is always other-oriented. One exercises true headship only insofar as one imitates Christ. Three, headship is not the power of a superior person over an inferior one. We talked about that last week, but it bears repeating. Our sinful nature is inclined to distort, to twist, that submission equates to inferiority. Inferiority. 
and that is to skew what God has done. It's to skew the beauty that we're all created equal in the image of God with inherent dignity, value, and worth. But we have differing roles because we are different. Four, headship is never to be identified with the issuing of commands. Now, I can get it. Some of you guys work long hours, hard work for intense, demanding, unsatisfying bosses. But that mentality cannot then be adopted by you and then regurgitated toward your wife. Do you hear me? Just because it's been done to you during the day doesn't mean you get to return it in favor to your wife in the evening. Your boss, again, is not the example of husbandry for you. Jesus is. Five, headship does not mean that the husband must make every decision in the home. In the home. And there's extremes. But think about the extreme of the wife who must ask for permission to leave the room or the wife who can't buy a new dress without asking permission on the color from her husband. Those are extremes. One author says, a key element in effective leadership is a man's openness and willingness, better still, his desire hunger to hear his wife's opinions, perspective, input. When her view is better than yours, when her opinion is wiser, acknowledge it but never in a condescending or patronizing way. And it goes on to say, you must be able to delegate with confidence. Some men are terrified or put in, in security world when their wives initiate anything. You don't have to be threatened. Your headship's not being questioned or even undermined if you don't make every single decision. It's not. Maybe you need to just set up some of the long-range goals for your family. Say, this is where we're going, and I'm not really good at some of the details. Can you help us? That's what it can look like. You can delegate with confidence. Now, let's define the essence of headship, right? Husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. One, headship is more a responsibility than a right. I think that's where it gets skewed a lot in mentality and thinking about this, but also in practice of this. Is that we believe that this is a right where we're entitled to demand something we've earned or deserve but it's a responsibility that we've received, that we're thankful for. A right leads to pride, which leads to superiority, which leads to treating your wife inferior, which leads to skewing headship and loving your wife as a church as domineering and using and, and using her. But a responsibility leads to humility. We could be both be talking about headship, but I mean something completely different because I'm talking about different tone and attitude. 
two, the boundary of headship is the Bible. Husbands have never been given authority to lead their families in ways that are contrary to scriptures. So husbands, you're not to put your wife in that spot. You're not put to put your wife in that. You're not to lead her in the position where she has to choose Jesus or you. Because hopefully, you lose all the time. But don't put her there. Three, headship is the authority to serve. The authority to serve. The authority to serve. Now, it sounds contradictory, but because we think about authority as getting others to compel them to serve us. Or it sounds subservient and menial. It's below me. John Piper writes this, Jesus was no less a leader of the disciples when he was on his knees washing their feet than he was giving them the great commission. Like, do you think the disciples thought less of Jesus when this is happening? Do you think they walked out through him like, I can't really respect this guy anymore? He got down on our hands and knees and he washed our feet. I I don't really have any confidence in this. No, they were bewildered (laughs) and amazed that this is what God is. This is God. That he comes and when he sees the need and when there's no serving, he's the leader. And what does a leader do? A leader sees the need, and a leader steps in the need, and the, lear- the leader feels that need. The leader has authority to serve, not the authority to demand, domineer, control, manipulate, coerce, but to serve. To serve your wife into magnificence, to love her towards splendor. Four, headship is the opportunity to lead. To lead. Now, if Jesus is our example, you can think about how Jesus led. He led by teaching his disciples, not lecturing, but just day in, day out, as we go, talking about Scripture, talking about the Father. That means, husbands, you, you need to be communing with your Father through the Word. Like, what, what, what are you going to be able to lead your wife when if you can't wield the sword? Are you going to protect her? How are you going to be tough on the tough and tender side? How are you going to be tough to protect her if you are a are basic in sword handling skills? How are you going to protect her? Jesus led by setting example for his disciples. Jesus led by praying and worshiping and obeying God. Jesus led by spending time with his disciples. Five, headship entails gentleness and sensitivity. Colossians 3 says that husbands are not to be embittered against their wives. Gentleness and sensitivity, I'm going to go a little ahead of myself, but it goes into the cherishing, which also the word that Paul uses in Thessalonians to say, we are with you. Uh, with deep, tender affection, nursing you like a, a child. That's cherishing. That's the gentleness. That's the sensitivity speaking of. Not being embittered. Not, the, not the, the ongoing impatience and frustration that leads to friction, which leads to nagging, which leads to bitterness. Saying, no, no, no. 
Headship is not to be bitter, angry, frustrated, but gentle and sensitive. Six, headship does not give men the right to be wrong. Can't use it to justify doing what you want, when you want, when it's unwise and sinful. You, you just can't, you can't use this and say, we're going to do it this way because God made me the head of this home. Seven, headship means honoring one's wife. It means respecting her. What did Jesus do? Restoring her dignity, dignifying her, valuing her, praising her in public, honoring her in front of your kids. Your kids' relationship with their mom has a lot to do with you. How you speak to her, how you honor her, how you speak about her to others or to them guides them, directs them, gives them thoughts of how they, they are to think about their mom. Why don't you give them thoughts that are honoring, that value her, that treasure her, that see all the grace and beauty that God is doing in her? Eight, headship entails the responsibility to make a final decision when agreement cannot be reached. This final decision, however, may be to let one's wife decide. Did you hear that? I love it. These are all original, just so you know. I peppered in some stuff. A lot of this is just years of reading and trying and failing and asking for help, repenting, reading, failing, asking for help. I love it in The Meaning of Marriage. Tim Keller talks about this, this final decision when agreement cannot be reached. And he says, uh, I know exactly, but around his 40 years of marriage, he's used that twice in his marriage where they've both been praying about a major decision, where are they to go, maybe a city location, or what do they do with their kids, something major. Twice in their life, they came at odds and he just said, I, I really feel that God has this for us. Can you, can you trust me in this? Can we go this way? And they're like, yes, let's go. I say that just to give some, it's not the example. It's not the metric, but I don't want the metric to be your dad where the trump card was used 400 times a week. Do you hear me? I don't know if it has to be two, but I, just, I do know it can't be 400 a week. Nine, headship means loving and caring for one's wife as much as we love and care for ourselves. That's the head and body metaphor. So just think about the time, energy, money, resources, concentration, attention you put in protecting and providing for yourself, men. There it is. The energy, the time, the attention, the focus, the planning, the prep, the execution. Yes. Yes towards your wife, 10. 
Lastly, headship means loving and caring for one's wife as much as Christ loves and cares for us. Now, we know we use love oddly in our language, right? God tells husbands to love your wives. And at the same time, we confess things to our friends that we love the Dallas Mavs and Heim barbecue, right? It's like, what does love mean if we're using this all for the same things, different things? Like, what? Well, to drill down, God helps us. And he helps us with those two clarifying, explaining words of nourish and cherish. That's love. Nourish and cherish. Now, nourish means to develop, to nurture, to lift up. It it carries a sense of dignifying purpose and care and attention. We are attentively loving her towards magnificence where you are cultivating her like a garden. So you're helping. If there's weeds in the garden, you're helping. Let's take these weeds out. If there's rocks there, you say, like I said, and let's plant this. And, and what about this? You're, you're, you're nurturing and trying to cultivate and build up and lift up and love her towards uh, the magnificent beauty that she is in Christ. With the image, this nourishing of The long haul, where at the end of your days, you're sipping whiskey on the porch with your lady, or tea, or water. I don't know your medical problems at that point. but you're holding hands, sitting on the porch, and she is mature and lovely. Now, you you can't take the glory for that. You praise the Lord for what he's done in you because you've made mistakes like us, and you've failed like us, and you've asked for help multiple times like us, and you repented a lot like us. But by the end, she's mature and lovely, and it's beautiful. And then he says, cherish, which goes, gets real emotional. If nourish wasn't enough. Cherish goes even deeper emotionally. It means to comfort, to warm, to soften by heat. So like like heartwarming, how we use it. We warm, husbands, we warm up our wife's heart by delighting in her and prizing her. Next to Jesus, she is your treasured friend and lover. So by delighting in her and treasuring her and cherishing her as prizing her (laughs) as the ultimate wonderful gift next to Jesus that the Father has given you. You treasure her. You don't compare her to others. You're not perpetually finding faults in her. You don't treat her at all like a loser that you're stuck with. You treat her as the man that you're humble that you get to be with her. This is amazing. With you? With you? I get to be with you? I get to hang out with you? I get to sleep uh, in bed with you? I get to snuggle you? I get to do this life with you? Yes, I love it. Why? Because I cherish her. I love her. I prize her. As Jesus nourishes and cherishes his church, that's love. 
love your wife. Love her, cherish her, develop her, cultivate her, and then prize her. Now let me give you, lastly, just some thoughts, some categories to think about this practically. Because, again, this isn't love your wife like your dad loved his wife, which usually is myopic, imbalanced, emphasizes one over the rest of things. So that can't be our example. Jesus does because he loves holistically. He loves fully. So husbands, love your wife physically by being safe for her, protective of her, tender with her. Where she doesn't see your physical strength as a danger but a blessing. That you're tough to protect her. Love her physically. Love her emotionally by knowing her this is the cherishing aspect a lot by knowing her by being known by her by opening up to her by being passionate affectionate and honest i've joked for years uh, about the passion that i have seen in some dudes on saturdays uh, saturdays about dudes younger than them throwing a pig around and then no passion on Sundays, I'll just make the same argument for your marriage. If you have more passion at this point with men younger than you playing a sport that means nothing in the grand scheme, if you have more passion about that than your wife, you've got to repent today. You've got to. Share your emotions. What's going inside of you? Explore her. What's going inside of her? And if you're like, I've been there, done that, your wife is always changing. There's always more to explore, to cover. Love your wife verbally with your words by encouraging her and praising her character, not only her looks. Speak honestly, respectfully, lovingly. Don't treat her like a 15-year-old boy when you were in uh, the locker room. She's not one of the guys. She's your bride. Love her verbally. Love her financially by working hard, by stewarding your resources well. Love your wife technologically. That's the whole category Why? All of Exodus, the book, is ultimately about God's presence with his people. Ultimately, that's what heaven's about. That's ultimately what the gospel is about, because it's Jesus coming to his people and then being with his people forever. And so you preach a gospelless sermon in your life if you're more present with your phone and screens when you're supposed to be present with your bride. So love her technologically. Connect with her. Cultivate her. Rather than ignoring her, be present when you're present. I, I feel like I need to push that down further. When you are in the presence of your wife and your kids, it is a valuable opportunity 
that you get to squash and squander or use for God's kingdom. So when you're there, be there. Humble yourself and know that you're not God. You are finite. You can't be in two places at the same time. Be at the place you're at and live a really gospel incarnational life like Jesus and come into your home and be in your home. Whatever you got to do. Some of you guys work from home and then go to home. Uh, Sorry. But whatever you got to do to shift gears, you got to do it. If it's, if it's, I know buddies that have had landmarks on their drive home that they said, hey, when I hit that gas station, I got to stop thinking about work. I got to turn, pray, think about my family because I'm going to my real job and that's my wife and my kids. Whatever you got to do to say, hey, I'm not, I'm not going to continue maybe the tone of the day because maybe I couldn't set the tone at my workplace. I'm not going to continue the tone of my boss I'm not going to continue the frantic, hurried pace that I've been in. I'm not going to continue in the earn, 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 uh, do, do, do to try to get people to like me. No, I'm going to come into my home in this covenantal marriage that's been blessed and guided by Jesus. And I'm going to love my wife to death. As you think about emotional, physical, verbal, financial, technological love your wife in all those ways if you look at verse 33 i'll just flip it and say wives you can respect your husbands in all these ways as well in these particular categories ray ortland puts it this way about husbands and wives he says a wise husband prizes and praises his wife above all others. Love breathes life into a woman. A wise wife will greatly strengthen and build him up for God's glory. He will accomplish more by the power of her respect respect than he ever could on his own. Respect breathes life into a man. And so Paul can conclude with saying, this is all ultimately gloriously about Jesus and his bride. But to be very clear, husbands, love your wives. And wives, respect your husbands. And get get to know the why behind it a little bit. And here's the why. Your love breathes life into her. And your respect breathes life to him. And you get to keep encouraging one another and outdoing one another and keep following Jesus together, even though sometimes you take one step forward and about 80 steps backwards you know that the spirit has you and he's going to continue to work in you to the end and so if you've fallen this week this month this morning get back up jesus is not done with you jesus is not done with your marriage because jesus is not done and ultimately this is all about his marriage So if you don't think he wants to reconcile you, then you don't understand how much he loves his bride. 
Because if his bride's ever running away from him, if his bride's ever hiding from him, his bride's ever cheating on him, he doesn't wallow in self-pity or run away knowing, oh, I'm going to sabotage this before it even happens because I know she's going to break up with me anyways. No, he comes after her even if she returns to the brothel again and again and again. That's how he loves you. Father, we thank you for that. To go back to chapter 5, one that we're dearly loved children by you. And to go further and say that Christ also loved us and gave himself up for us. And Romans 5 tells us that the Holy Spirit pours the Father's love into our hearts so I ask, Father, that you would tear apart, remove, knock down, take the shields, whatever that is protecting, guiding, guarding us from feeling, sensing, experiencing your love for us. Would you remove it? Pour your love into our hearts that we might celebrate this this morning, like, a, like an anniversary, like a celebration of <laughs> how Jesus loves us. And then, Father, I pray that you would speak to us, Spirit, that you would correct, direct, kindly lead us to turn from sinful words and actions to faulty mentalities, wrong ways of thinking, to turn from idolatry, the love of ourself, the love of comfort, to turn from the disbelief that you don't love us, you don't care for us, and, and you won't see us to the end, and that we turn to the truth, the good news, and rejoice. We all deeply so want someone to know us and love us. And you do. Thank you. Thank you, Father. In Christ's name, amen.